In the winter of 1970, a film with a perplexing title opened in Italian cinemas. Written and directed by a young filmmaker named Dario Argento, the movie drew from influences ranging from American film noir to the thrillers of Alfred Hitchcock and the work of fellow Italian Mario Bava, whose film Blood and Black Lace a few years earlier provided the framework for the genre known as giallo. The film was an instant sensation in both Italy and internationally, and soon an array of giallo films, often with lurid animal-themed titles, flooded Italian cinema throughout the early and mid-70s. Welcome to Get Me Another, The Bird with the Crystal Plumage. Rob, I think this series, it's going to be a little bit different, and I'm very excited uh, because it is going to be a little different. To begin with, this will be our first series consisting entirely of movies made outside of the Hollywood studio system. Yeah! Burn, Hollywood, burn, baby! <laughs> it, it is currently burning, Rob. It is. I can see the smoke and ash from here in the I San know. Fernando Valley. Well, you know what they say, Chris. Nothing ever happens in Los Angeles. It's a quiet town. That's true. <laughs> 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 uh, um, so, yeah, we wanted to mention that one of the reasons that we are doing this series at this particular time is because of the ongoing WGA and SAG after strikes, which we very strongly support. And as we mentioned at the end of our last series, we want to be very careful about doing anything that could be seen as promoting work owned by companies that are currently being struck against. That said, this presents us with a great opportunity to cover a fascinating range of films that themselves have gone on to have such a huge influence on suspense filmmaking around the world. Yeah, I mean, you. Uh, this has been, I think, well-trod, or at least somewhat trod territory. Uh, without Giallo, the Italian Giallo films, you do not get in the 90s the U.S. run of uh, super-intelligent psycho-serial killer movies. Yes, yes. Something that eventually we'll tackle in Get Me Another Silence of the Lambs yeah. uh, down the road. Um, or, I mean, you don't even get the slasher films of the 70s and 80s. Probably not, although one could, you could make the argument Psycho was enough. Well, that's true. And I don't know, I don't, I don't know that it was, but... The idea that someone would eventually go back to a Hitchcock film and maybe try and rip it off, I'm like, that probably would have happened. It may not have happened in the form. It may not have been when we got it. Right. But I think we probably would have gotten something. That is true, but it certainly would have taken a different shape because that Giallo influence throughout the American slasher is very, very clear. So oh, yeah. it would have it would have taken a different form. Who knows? On on Who Earth three thousand and sixty-five, they may there may have never been Giallos, and and we could we could peek through the dimensional curtain to find out how their slasher movies developed. That's exactly what I would do with uh, the ability to hop <laughs> interdimensionally, by the way. Uh, you can try Trust me, I'm not going to change any history. I will just be a moron. <laughs> <laughs> I also want to mention that it, for this series, that we are going to be talking about spoilers in this series. Now, that's nothing new here on Get Me Another. We usually talk about spoilers, but I want to take great care in particular with this series, because these films inherently are mysteries. And the unraveling of the mystery is 
part of the excitement. So we are going to be a little bit more diligent about spoiler space than previously, especially when it comes to the reveal. We'll have to talk about them because that is that we'll need to analyze. We, we're, we're, we're tasked with analyzing these films and that is part of it. But we're, we're going to make it so if, if you've not seen some of these movies and you listening to us become interested and are like, no, no, I want to skip past it so I don't see the end and then I'll come back. Uh, we want to make it so you can do that. For the technologically minded uh, podcast episodes, we have been for some time now putting in chapters, yes. which essentially for the most part just allows you to go from the intro, the movie, to the movie, to the outro. This time we are going to break up individual movies into the bulk of the movie and then the killer reveal. Exactly. Exactly. So if you want to skip uh, just take a look. A lot of your podcasting apps will have the ability to see those chapters and move on to the next one before we ruin everything. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll have ruined about eighty percent before. Well, this, yeah, but, but, you yeah. know that's here. Yeah. It's it's a it's a particular thing. So before we get into the films themselves, we should talk a little bit about Giallo and its history. For those who may not be familiar, Giallo is a type of Italian mystery thriller often revolving around the search for a killer whose identity is not revealed until the last act. We usually follow a detective character of some kind who is obsessed with solving the mystery at hand. Themes of violence, sexuality, voyeurism, and obsession permeate giallo films, and there's a palpable atmosphere to these movies. Honestly, it's as much a vibe as it is a genre. Like, it's a feeling of... of you know, I mean, it's got structure, the, the, but it's definitely got just some of it's just a vibe. Uh, for sure. And I, uh, I'll i be making all kinds of ridiculous proclamations this whole series. But <laughs> I would say that as a subgenre of horror, a subgenre, not a singular film, because you can right. point to a film here or there. I think this is the first fine art horror subgenre that ever existed. Interesting. This is the fine arts uh, from everything from the classical framing the directors have to the sets, the costume designs. This is high-end horror. Uh, this is Italian A24 decades before that happened. <laughs> uh, the term giallo is Italian for yellow. And it's derived from a series of pulp crime novels published by Montadori publishers from 1929 onwards. These paperbacks, usually translations of British and American mysteries, had yellow covers. And giallo soon became a term for pulp mystery. In the mid-20th century, films such as Les Diaboliques, Peeping Tom, as well as Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho, pushed the envelope of thrillers with psychological complexity and stunning plot twist. The success of a genre of German films known as Krimis, based on the murder mystery novels of Edgar Wallace, was another big influence on their Italian counterparts. It's also a tongue twister, the genre of German mysteries. <laughs> I don't know why I put yeah. it that way. I'm like, I kind of... <laughs> You could, have, you could have made it easier on yourself, but you went for the what the quad. You went uh, for it's the my quad. whole brand. I, yes. I, you know, the and it was it was beautiful, my man. Yeah. <laughs> what was the what was the the big move in the cutting edge? It was like it was named after the coach. Of, oh, the Pavlashenko. That's it. That's what I, I was going yeah. for. That. Yes. <laughs> In the early 1960s, Italian filmmaker Mario Bava made two films that would come to define giallo cinema and pave the way for Argento's film a few years later. 
The first of these was 1963's The Girl Who Knew Too Much, a black and white mystery starring Letitia Roman and John Saxon about a young woman who comes to Rome and believes she has witnessed a murder. But as the police can't find a body and don't believe her story, she is forced to investigate the apparent crime herself, and in doing so, may become the killer's next target. The Girl Who Knew Too Much, released in the United States under the title Evil Eye, is a really good movie, and especially in terms of seeing the elements of Giallo begin to take shape. And I highly recommend that you guys seek it out. But it was another film the following year, also by Mario Bava, this time in color, in which the Giallo formula fully emerged. This is Blood and Black Lace. A house of high fashion, a dazzling whirl of elegance, of exotic, extravagant beauties. An adventurous journey into the devastating allure of the most sophisticated women and their intimate secrets. Suddenly, these lace curtains ignite a drama that will lacerate your emotions. Blood and black lace. (coughs) Who is this shrouded, sadistic, sordid fiend who maims and murders? This bloodthirsty orgy, this holocaust of lives. Blood and black lace in bleeding color. For shattering, shivering, shocking experience. Directed by Mario Bava and written by Bava, Marcello Fondato, and Giuseppe Barilla, Blood and Black Lace plunges us into a world of Italian high fashion, one where a killer is afoot. The film has a mixed international cast with both European and American actors, and that's something we're going to see frequently in this in the films of this series. At the time, American films didn't really have to be too concerned with the international market. The U.S. was big enough for a film to be successful, and overseas release was kind of thought of as an extra. But European films, the international was key, even if it just played within Europe. An Italian film would need to play in Spain or France, etc. Blood and Black Lace stars Eva Bartok, Cameron Mitchell, Thomas Rainier, Ariana Gorini, Mary Arden, and Luciano Pagosi. This is the fifth film, I have to say, for Luciano Pagosi after hey! You're the Hunter from the Future and the Margariti trilogy from our Indiana Jones series. Only Pat Roach has been in more Get Me Another films. Uh, and he's interesting in this. He's very Peter Lorre-esque in this movie. I actually have a note that Massimo is played by... Peter Lorini, uh, because <laughs> he looks like an Italian Peter Lorre. Absolutely. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. We open with this very evocative jazz score, this riff that will be repeated throughout the film over shots of the various characters, as well as mannequins in this dark space and the juxtaposing of people and mannequins. It is unsettling to say the least, especially, I swear to God, Rob, one of the mannequins moved. I know one of the mannequins moved. Yeah, and those mannequins are not what you would see in a department store. No. These are like crushed red velvet mannequins that look both um, sumptuous and foreboding at the same time, which oh is really everything about this movie. Yeah. Is the style. Just from the beginning, the style of this movie. It's yeah. just, it's amazing. Yeah, and, and this score, though, well, it's amazing, but I want to, uh, because we're going to get such a shift 
when we go to our next film. Yes. This score is very, you know, this uh, what came out in the States, what, 64? 64, like that. yeah. So this very much feels like a 60s movie, and that's not a criticism. Yes. Okay. And the score is part of that. I'll, I'll touch on other stuff as we get there. But the score feels very classic. You know, there are times at which um, you, it's very Bernard Herrmann Hitchcockian, very thriller of its era. Um, again, not a criticism. I love that stuff. As if mm-hmm. anyone has, has listened to everything, you know that I can't shut up about Bernard Herrmann. So I just want to say this is because while this lays the groundwork for a lot of the individual siloed story parts right. and even a little bit of the tone and feel, there are some big, big shifts when we get to Bird yeah. that go go well beyond what Bava did here. Yes. And, and it's interesting because there's also uh, – there's there's a big filmmaking shift just in the time between 1964 and 1970. Like yeah. you, you – uh, that's a watershed time and you can see it in the two movies that we're talking about today. We then cut to the Christian Haute Couture fashion house, where the opening shot of the sign coming unhinged in a storm should tell you that something is up. For our American listeners, Christian is a name. Yes. It is not a Christian religious Haute Couture uh, house I'm sure it's pronounced Christian or something a little bit more. something. Yeah. Yeah. So this is not, Jesus has nothing to do with this. Oh, Jesus has nothing to do with this movie. No, No. absolutely. Maybe Catholicism, (laughs) but not Jesus. No. Uh, One of the models, Isabella, is arriving at the grounds of this massive fashion house where she is stalked and eventually killed by a man wearing a trench coat, a black fedora, a pair of black gloves, and a white featureless mask. This sequence, Rob, is just amazing. And all the elements from the the classical architecture of the fashion house grounds, the bright red raincoat that Isabella wears, the the light and shadow of this sequence is incredible. Absolutely. The the cinematography is Especially there are some complaints some sometimes with modern film that they can get a little dark and murky, uh, that people aren't quite lighting uh, nighttime scenes correctly. This is one that threads that needle. This is definitely looks and feels like night, and yet you are seeing exactly what you're supposed to, and you're seeing it crisply. Additionally, just like, the again, Baba has such classic framing, and the... The movement of the camera when it happens and the editing, this is a beautiful geometric sequence. It's a beautiful geometric film. Yes. Um, It is a puzzle box of art to look at. And, you know, it's got teeth, but this is, I think, above all, like, there is a term in some of the, uh, oh my goodness, and I can't remember what what tantric uh, sect this was in. But there's this idea of you have different forms of art and they exist in different well realms of hum, uh, human experience. And there is one for death. Interesting. Okay. That there is uh, this concept of the art of death opening things up in humanity and being uh, necessary. And you can take enjoyment out of it, even though you don't take necessarily enjoyment out of the death of others in reality. Of course not. No, no. Yeah. It, it, it is a mandala of death. Oh yeah, no, and and that I mean that first murder of Isabella at the hands of the faceless man is is brutal even by modern standards. Yeah. For 1964, it must have been absolutely shocking. Yes, 
pearls were clutched for sure, as for the, uh, sure, as they say. Yes. Yeah, I mean, this comes as a time when constraints on violence and sexuality in cinema are beginning to change and would radically do so over the next few years. But And and that change probably starts earlier in Europe than it does in the United States because the last vestiges of the Hayes Code hadn't gone away yet. But this film is really bending the curve in that regard. There's no weapon used here. The killer kills with his bare well, no. Not the bare hands. The killer kills with his black gloved hands. Yes. Not his bare hands, his black gloved hands. And the body is dragged across the ground. We get this whiff of sexuality as Isabella's skirt comes up, revealing her thigh eye stockings. And this mixture of violence and sexuality and voyeurism is something we're going to see over and over again in these movies. Yeah. And what is also interesting to me is the uh, the setting itself, which we're about to get into, mm-hmm. where this is a very unique world. Yes, that this uh, that this horror is is entering. Yes, it's all basically takes place at the fashion house at this at this high fashion house, and it's it it is it's just this fascinating. I don't know. It's just this fascinating world that these things happen in. Yeah, for sure, and it is uh, it's such a treat. To watch this thing. Yes. You know, this this whole world is so interesting and it's unique. And we'll as we go through, I'm gonna connect it to some other things, but we're not there yet because 64 is too early. Right. But I do wanna say that the, it's the push and pull of the beautiful and the grotesque, yeah. or the, you know, the the fantastic and the, you know, the terrifying, however you want to put it. And I, I texted you, I think, while watching this movie, Chris, that uh uh, you know, this movie and world, it's like so beautiful that I want to live in it, <laughs> even though I know I'm going to get murdered. It's, yeah. like, it's like, it doesn't matter. Yeah, no, I absolutely. It, it's, it's, it, it, it's fast. I mean, it, even to the, the architecture feels like this, the fashion house is this sort of, oh, you know, like very ornate classical architecture that these terrible things are happening in. And it seems like the house gets darker and darker as the more the film goes on until we get to yeah. some of the later sequences. And it's not long before the body is discovered inside the fashion house. And the subsequent police investigation reveals that not only was Isabella's ex-boyfriend, an antiques dealer named Franco Scalo, was a cocaine addict, but that she kept a diary detailing the vices and secrets of the fashion house's staff and the diary and who has it and who does it becomes the focus for the first act of the film. Yeah. And when that diary is found, you get, I want to say 46 reaction shots from yes! the character in the room. Yes. <laughs> and normally that, that could sound ridiculous, but it actually it is reinforcing everyone who's going to be a suspect. Yes, which is is everybody in this movie exists to be a suspect or a victim. I mean, that's except the inspector who will get to the police because I, I I have thoughts about the police in this movie uh, yes. as well. But like you know, there's as you say, there's this great moment where they just they keep cutting back and forth between the the. There's like it's a fashion show going on and they keep cutting back and forth between the individual reaction shots and this black purse that we know the diary is in. And it's just they're all watching it intensely. Uh, some of the some of the characters involved, we have Contessa Christina Cuomo, played by Eva Bartok. She is the head of the fashion house whose husband was killed in a car accident not long ago. 
Her partner, Massimo Morlacci, or Max Morlin, if you're watching the English dubbed version, uh, was played by American actor Cameron Mitchell. We also have Inspector Silvestri, who's investigating the case, as well as numerous other models and dressers uh, and, and just a full fashion house of people who are either going to be suspected of murder or murdered themselves. Yeah, absolutely. And I and I think, is it Nicole is the one who winds up with that diary? Yes. Yeah, one of the, and one of the models, I believe, right? Yes. And she secrets, there's just this one, in it, again, I'm calling out different stuff, but indicative of, of just like all throughout this movie, you're generally not getting boring coverage. No. She goes to put the diary in her purse. Everyone has seen her do it, and she knows everyone's seen her do it. So she puts it on the table, the corner of this table, because she has to walk out to do the fashion show. Yeah. And as you're, you're seeing this shot locked off, where in the foreground, you've got the purse, and it has the kind of handles that that stick up themselves. In that circle frame... Or that half moon frame of the purse with the handles is one of the suspects who's like looking at it. You've got other people framed around watching her go, you know, as she's going out, she's like in full long shot at that point. And you're seeing all of these people in addition to the hustle and bustle of putting on the show. And I mean, you, if you want some mise-en-scene people, uh, <laughs> translate it to Italian and then watch this movie because it is fantastic. Nicole, who does have the diary, decides to slip away from the fashion show because she has now become involved with Franco. Uh, and, and she needs to bring him. He needs some drugs. He's going through a hard time. So she's going to bring him some drugs at his antique store. And so she slips away from the fashion show, taking her purse with her. And she arrives at his antique store, but instead of her lover waiting for her, it's the killer. And Rob, if the if the opening sequence was a, a watershed, this sequence, my God, it is one of the most significant and and groundbreaking sequences in horror filmmaking because the antique store acts as this multi-level maze through which the killer can pursue Nicole. And it's just, it's an absolute core touchstone for countless slasher movies to come. Yeah. It even has the lights coming up and coming down. Yes. Uh, Except in this one, it's a little different than what you probably are used to in American films because a, the lights are colored. So you're already in a different kind of a world, but also the lights never go all the way off. Right. So you're, what you're doing is you're getting extra light in a certain area and that's coming down to almost off, but you still have, it's not complete darkness because it's really playing with, I think there's one shot where she kind of, he's very far away, yeah. sees the killer in the killer outfit and he's standing next to a mannequin, but he's stock still. Yeah. And then the light comes down and comes back up and then he's, he's gone. gone. And it's it it's one of those wonderful things where if Halloween plays with the, you know, with Michael Myers in the closet, the eyes getting adjusted to the dark. Right. This plays a lot more with the did I actually see what I thought I saw there? Right. But without it being a cat jump scare like you would right. probably frequently get in u.s film as well yeah it's not there's no Luton bus here it's it's the it's (laughs) (laughs) it's it's and and that that i mean you hit the nail on the head the theme of did i see what i saw i mean that is the crux of our second film and maybe the crux of the whole damn genre right there what did i actually see and what did it actually mean? this this sequence it just it's the dna we are seeing the dna of 
the of the modern slasher movie being written in in this sequence. It is just oh yeah, it's amazing. Uh, and one more thing about this sequence, I didn't even realize. I had there's more because it is as you say, <laughs> it is such a, a blueprint. I believe I you I could be wrong, but that up to this point, it's been wall to wall score. Oh yeah. I don't think you've really had a, a quiet moment, even during the uh Isabella's attack and death earlier. There was some, you know, it might have been lesser. Uh this is the first moment when sh- the chase really starts to happen and she's into it where all score drops and it's only Foley work sound effects uh, to heighten the tension. And, you know, again, you've seen this a million times Um, and, you know, look, it's not like that never happened before. You could even point to M way back in the day with, Mm -hmm. you know, the whistling or whatever, but holy smokes, this is in a modern cut, you know, what was turning into a modern second half of the 20th century context. And it was just, I don't know. It's it's really affecting. And we should also talk about the actual killing itself because it's it it uses again the antique store. It's like this the the implement of 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 the murder is like this this three-pronged like black like weapon that that you know and again I keep thinking audiences in 1964 must have just been like you know I mean this is where the I mean man the color of the blood in the on the in the color film I mean, it's something. I mean, it's beautiful and it's it's grotesque all at the same time. We also, we start to get a sense of the killer's motivation here because he searches through the purse for, for the diary, but it's gone. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> In fact, it was stolen by another model, Peggy, who took it because it had information about a secret abortion she once had. So it, 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 this thing, yeah, and, and it's, it's, it's interesting because... Peggy is going to be the next one stalked and killed for that reason at home. Like the, the killer is clearly after the diary at this point. And what is great is that when Peggy gets back to her house, she goes, she reads whatever she's like, she finds the information she was looking for. Then she burns the diary. Yeah. She rips the pages out and then also burns the diary. She, it's like a little overkill, Peggy, <laughs> but I get it. You're freaked out. But like this thing that, that is so important in act one is now boom. Gone. Yeah. It's set up as the MacGuffin for if you get this diary, you will learn the identity of the killer, and then you do not. There might be something famous in American studio system that has a very famous diary of a murdered girl who you think it's going to reveal everything, but it just doesn't. Oh, what could that possibly be? I'm going to guess it's Twin Peaks. Yeah. Oh yeah, I, I know. I don't know why I thought it was a trick question. I was like, "Oh, is no, it some like is it I, some forties film that I'm no. not thinking of?" That I'm like, "Oh, yes. I, I, I'm like, no, it's Twin Peaks." Yeah, it's the petrified forest, Chris. Yeah, I'm like, no, <laughs> it is not. It is not the petrified a trick forest. Question. Yeah, yeah. So Peggy is the next one that the killer comes after, and and again we get it, it, the the again the the kills in this movie. I don't want to boil it down to that because it is so much more, but they are groundbreaking in terms of the 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 way they are set up and and when he's asked oh the killer is asking peggy about the diary he writes it silently on this notepad a very distinctive black leather notepad with what like is it three like fleur-de-lis fleur-de-lis yes yeah. three fleur-de-lis uh and and you know just to get another says, twin peaks reference in there <laughs> whatever you whatever you 
design. Oh, that's a that's Fleur de Lis. Whatever it is, L.A. Confidential. That's what I'm thinking of. Oh yeah, but yep. I, the one-eyed Jacks. I think they had the Fleur de Lis as well. That is true. Yeah. She tells the killer that she burned it, which he confirms. He finds the burnt diary and then takes Peggy off to an undisclosed location to question her more and torture her more. And it's, it's incredible. Like it's, 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 it's the, uh, like the, the police are coming up the stairs and he's going up the other way with Peggy over his shoulder. It's, it's an amazing sequence. Yeah. And it is, uh, you know, you get that, the, the shots panning where you're like looking up the stairs where the killer is dragging her and she's unconscious. That's why she's not making noise. Yeah. He's getting her up the stairs as he rounds. Then you, the camera pans right and you see our doofus detectives coming oh, up. Oh God. Um, yeah. which I, this, this movie, while it does have technically giallo detective, mm-hmm. it does feel again. It's, it's not quite in the mold of later because it's not an active investigation. The inspector drives almost none of the story. He's more like the cop in psycho or older yes. movies where it's, yes. it's, you're there because the censor board's going to want you to have the cops uh, be the good guys and yeah. do certain things. But there's really no interest in exploring the detecting in this movie. It, it feels more Agatha Christie, like locked room mystery, as opposed to a crime. Yeah, I think that's the one thing that's really different about this film from most giallos is where the detective is front and center. And we'll see that in our next film. Now, that detective doesn't necessarily have to be a professional cop. A, a police officer could be an amateur detective. Here, it feels like the detection is is sort of it's secondary to to as you say this kind of Agatha Christie-esque mystery. The real detective of this piece is us. Yes. The audience. Yes. We are the ones who are piecing it together. There's no other character who's piecing it together. Uh, it, like we're it, baby. Yeah, that's true. Absolutely. Um I mean the the detective really serves he he does one thing that is really significant and changes the course of the movie and it comes right about the halfway point oh yes yes he's got the, like there's like there's like five or so guys who are like sort of the prime suspects and he locks them all up he just says yeah, you know what we're locking you up for the time being and 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 so therefore you know he's going to keep him in, in jail uh, for a night or two and it's during that time that another model greta is killed this one, after she drives home and discovers Peggy's body, which, by the way, the killer burned her face on a, on a hot stove. And you see that makeup. You see the makeup post-burn. One of the most gruesome, gruesome. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It is. Yikes. The killer stashes uh, Peggy's body in the in this this in Greta's trunk, and so Greta drives home having no idea that the the, the bo- there's a body in the trunk. And she's actually engaged to one of the men who's been locked up, and she lives in this big hunt country house, complete with a butler, the marquis, right? The marquee, yeah, he's the marquis. Yeah, it's uh, who who is a suspect because everyone thinks he's rich, but he is not rich anymore. That's right, uh, and very secretly not rich anymore. Uh, a fact that would be in the diary, I believe. Yeah, and Greta has the misfortune of being uh, a Cassandra yeah. figure, where she was the one who was freaked out trying to get everyone to stay together because she was like we're gonna die tonight and everyone else said <laughs> oh, oh the men are in the jail i yeah. guarantee no one's gonna die tonight and that's the guarantee that you know but she will. does the dumbest thing in this movie let's just be well, honest uh, with yeah you. many like, many dumb it, things, l- yes. listen folks listen take some advice from me if you find a dead body in the trunk of your car 
and that you didn't put it there. If you put it there, well, then, you know, hey, that's on you. <laughs> but if you didn't put it there, just call the cops. Don't touch anything. Certainly don't drag it inside your own house and hide it behind a flimsy screen while your butler is coming to bring you a nightcap. Don't do that. And two sets of screens that have like a foot between them so that you can even <laughs> see the body there. Like, girl, Greta, you saw what Tali was right by your trunk. You should have just gone straight inside. Yeah. Just just yeah. go yeah, Come right on. inside. And that's, you know, and, and, and that's Greta does all of that. And then sure enough, the killer is waiting to smother her with a pillow like uh, like she is uh, like she's big chief in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. I did not make that connection. There we go. So both of those bodies are now discovered, and Inspector Silvestri is forced to release all the suspects because the killer's still killing. He locked up all the people he thought did it. and They have airtight alibis now, airtight baby. Airtight alibis. The best alibi you could have is you were locked in jail overnight. You know, you're not getting out. How how could Billy Loomis make that phone call to Sid? It couldn't happen. He was locked up in jail. Airtight. Here we are going to be crossing the spoiler line. We're going to be talking about the, the revelation of the uh, the killer and, and the mystery, and, and we're going to get into it. So if you have... If you have not seen Blood and Black Lace and you're intrigued enough by our conversation, skip over this chapter and you can listen to us talk about the bird with the crystal plumage. But here we go. So all the men are released from prison. And as they're, they're like getting their possessions back, you know, one of them, fashion house director Massimo Morlacci, has the same distinctive notebook the killer used to question Peggy. And he returns to the fashion house. And when he does, he goes through the secret bookcase door. God, Rob, all I want is a house with a secret bookcase door. I promise I will only use it for good. Um, and But but he is using it for evil. And he, we learned that leads down to the basement where we see the stove that Peggy was killed with. And it's so interesting because of all the men. And you mentioned this with the, the, the marquee who is actually broke. All the men except Morlachi, show this kind of one one outward weakness or another. Like there's the drug addict. There's the guy who's worried about his death. There's, there's the one guy who's like an epileptic. Morlachi is the only one who is cool the whole time. Yeah. And Morlachi, and we'll get there, but he has the critical inner weakness. Yes. Which will be his downfall. Yes. Here's the question you folks are asking. If he was in jail when Greta was killed, wait, there's two killers, Rob. The Countess Christina Cuomo was in on it as well. And I mean, this twist, it's amazing. I mean, it must have been the inspiration for a certain 90s slasher film from Wes Craven. It must have been. Yes. But, you know, that, that mask conceals all features so that it's more than one killer. Brilliant. And you get a info dump scene like no other, but it's oh, yes. two murderous lovers. What's the matter, darling? What a mess. All because of that idiot, that witch, Isabella. The blackmail. Money she wanted. Money, money, money too much money. She should have realized when she found out about 
that my husband's death wasn't an accident. That it was dangerous and unwise to ask for that money. But no, no, no. The more that we would give her, the more she wanted. She asked for it, she did. She was on top of it. Too hard, my darling. She squeezed too hard. Mm. And the diary. That damn diary. If it hadn't been for that damn diary. <laughs> it is done now. And we have nothing to worry about, my darling. Nothing to worry about. No, you're wrong. You're wrong. We'll never have any peace. Until we've given the police their murderer. It, and there's been some mention of the Countess's dead husband before. Yes. Uh, the cop, uh, Inspector Silvestri, has been visited, has, remembers her from when he came because of the death of the husband. It turns out these two were, uh, you know, in the bone zone, as you uh, Yeah, that's, say. As, uh, that's exactly what yeah. they said in Italy that's in 1964. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, and then they, uh, they, killed, they killed the Count took the model business and uh, the couture business away and they've been happily uh being murdery ever since and yet someone discovered their secret chris and it was isabella who put it in her she was blackmailing them she didn't go to the cop she was blackmailing them and she put it in her diary and that was what was motivating all of the killings and and they even you know they the the sexualized violent nature of the killings is an intentional red herring to throw the police off of the off the track although i think it's clear in their in in this sequence that christina has clearly lost her grip on sanity i mean she's like lying there listing off the names and laughing and then she goes to kiss morlachi and it's again it's blood and sex yeah these films are all about blood and sex and was morlachi the one that the drug addict guy tried to say was impotent earlier he might have yeah the cops were questioning so yeah. there is this there is this, and it's never confirmed nor denied, and it's hard to trust a coke-addled addict who's trying to throw suspicion off of himself. Well, you know, antique dealer. But you know, it's you know, uh, Christina and him—they seem pretty cozy, so it, it doesn't really imply. But maybe there is some sexual frustration, even though it's total crime motive. Total, totally a crime motive, uh, which I think also is putting it in uh, the older. The older set, the killer motive is will become far, far different when we yes. zoom into the next decade. <laughs> yes, here, here, it's it's it, it is a motive of of gain, of personal gain. And the other thing, and that that definitely sets it apart from the movies that will will come. The other thing I think that sets it apart is in terms of point of view. Yeah, most Giallo films, and, and we'll see this in our next movie. They follow a single detective character, and and it's it's through their eyes that we see the case unfold. In Blood and Black Lace, our POV ships basically from one character to the next, often ending when that character is killed, and then we go to the next victim, you know, the next potential victim, until you know, from one to the other, until we finally get to the two killers. And in a sense, it's not unlike Psycho where we start with Marion Crane's POV and then we switch to Norman. And and then, you know, we have multiple POVs until we reach the final act. 
uh, in the previous film, the the girl who knew too much. There, you have one female character who is who is trying to solve the mystery. So it comes much closer in terms of the narrative structure of Giallo's. Although the style is really what comes into play here. And and I think I, I honestly I think Argento kind of looked at both films, kind of combined aspects of both, and then you know we're gonna we're we'll be getting to our next film. But we have one more killing, Rob. We're not done yet because no. Morlacci decides that one more murder is necessary to put them in the clear, and that Christina has to do it. She kills another model, Tauli or Tildy in the American version, and. This scene, oh my good! You just start with a killer is holding the head underwater, and I mean, this is an image we're going to see in slasher films time and again. From you know, for, uh, God, from Halloween two to to Friday the Thirteenth in space, Friday uh, Jason X, like Friday the Thirteenth, Jason X, like except there it's like the 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 frozen, you know, the the nitrate thing, whatever. Uh, th- this scene is amazing. And then after putting the body in the bathtub, Christina uses the razor to open her wrist to make it look like a suicide. And that shot of the blood yeah. spreading through the water. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, it's so fantastic. And the whole setup here is that she's going to they're going to leave the mask and other killer yes. accoutrement to frame job to frame. Yeah. So they're going to frame except what happens. But as she's leaving the mask behind, she's done her duty. Yes. She hears something. A knock. A knock at the door. Oh, no. But that's okay. She has a plan. She's going to escape via this drain pipe on the the second floor to get down. But the drain pipe has been weakened and it breaks and she falls to the ground. And then we learn that the knock at the door was actually Morlachi, who also weakened the drain pipe. His intention to kill Christina and inherit her fortune. By the way, they were secretly married. That also comes out is that they had a secret marriage. So that way he'll inherit their for- her fortune. So Chris, here's where it's time for me to get real. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Morlachi, I'm talking to you. All right. From, from beyond the grave. Oh my God. Okay. Fictional character. Yep. Ah. <sighs> You know, killing everyone to inherit it all so that you wouldn't have to share a dime or a lira, <laughs> all of that, sure, I kind of get it, right? And But here's the thing is that's your inner greed being your downfall, right? Yeah. This is your hubris that you could get away with it. You know what would have been a good plan B, maybe, Mr. Morlacci? Staying married to the beautiful Countess. Oh my goodness, yeah. Who loved you so much that she literally killed for you. Yeah. And you could have just shared all the riches that were already yours. That might have been a good plan too, dummy. 100%. (laughs) Uh, Eva Bartok in this movie is, as the kids say, a smoke show. And uh, this guy's a fool to not, to, to like... Uh, you know, you do what you have to do to get to get to the top, but but you could share that top with a, a, a super hot, uh, you know, model countess. fashion house model countess. countess. She's a countess. Yes. You'd be a count for God's sake. Uh, yeah. You know, no, it's, you're you're one hundred percent right. This guy is uh, he, he yeah. deserves what he gets. Apparently, he read too many tales from the crypt comic books, but never got to the end of any of them uh, <laughs> because he would have known. Don't do this. Don't no. Uh, yeah, and then so th- th- there's an ending scene. This is this is an amazing sequence where the the oh, fashion fantastic. house. It's it's dark. 
and we follow the camera through this nearly empty space. There are mannequins standing about, and the camera appears to move one out of the way. Just before we go over to this well-lit room where Morlachi is trying to open a jewelry box, and then the camera pulls away again, and Morlachi goes and checks to see if he heard something. And I think initially we're supposed to believe that first-person figure is Christina, but she does return. She returns from a completely different part of the house. So I think in some ways is is the camera itself has become this character that can affect the action of the story that that it's it's a really interesting moment here yeah and it's not it's not into full pov killer mode no but it does it, it's it's almost like a little evolution of it um or a little a little uh you could call it on set you'd probably call it a little cheat but yeah. um it works beautifully <laughs> though it does. Mortally injured after her fall, uh, the, the Countess shoots Morlachi, and the two die right next to one another. The red phone hanging from the receiver, because she was going to call the police, but she didn't make it. And the police are on the other end of the line, and they're just totally useless. They don't even know what's happened. You know, but that red phone, like the red raincoat at the beginning, we begin and end. Uh, with that, that that red striking image and that shot, even the, the like the oh, shot yeah. of the shot, the the lovers have embraced, and he's trying to say he's essentially trying to backtrack now, uh, and you know, and be like, no, I still love you, baby. It was an accident. I I didn't I didn't loosen the the pathway that I told you to exactly go down. Just happens. And look, we all pretty much know what's going to happen, but you don't a hundred percent know. And you get that embrace and it's her face and his is on her shoulder. So you don't see his face and you hear the gunshot while, and they stay embraced and they both are kind of like making this groan type thing. And you're like, who shot whom? Yeah. It's so wonderful. And then eventually he crumples down and she's crumpling down too, but not because of uh, being shot, uh, be- because she fell from a great height. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. And it, it's interesting. This film, there's a there's a real gothic atmosphere to this film. And, and, and what you have to remember that at this time, the majority of horror films were gothic. You'd had the golden age of universal horror in the 30s and 40s, uh, This what I would refer to as the silver age of gothic horror, beginning in the late 50s with Hammer, uh, and Hammer Studios and, and the, the works of, of Roger Corman, as well as Bava's own Black Sunday, which is an amazing gothic horror film. Yeah, you can see those fingerprints all over this movie. Yeah, like this feels like the transitional piece like this is the, yeah. the the transitional point into the post-gothic horror that we would see in the 70s and onward and this is a key point because by the time we get to our second film that gothic flavor has that atmosphere has evaporated entirely and uh and 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 we move to something else a, a different kind of atmosphere yeah i mean it is um and it really the only way I think this that Blood and Black Lace could have been approved, improved is with the if uh, with the addition of Barbara Steele. I don't know if she was oh, yeah. available or what. Everything could be improved with the addition of Barbara Steele. Yeah, uh, it but, just in, um, as a general note, I mean she's amazing. Yeah. Uh, strangely, Blood and Black Lace was not a box office success and kind of came and went in in 1964 without much fanfare at all. There were more Giallo films made through the 1960s, and some of them were fairly noteworthy, particularly the films of Umberto Lenzi. But it wasn't until 1970 
that a film would come along to truly revolutionize the genre and kick off the golden age of Giallo. That film was The Bird with the Crystal Plumage. Footsteps on the stairs, a shadow under the door, a reflection from a knife, and all the screaming in the world won't help. In the Hitchcock tradition, The Bird with the Crystal Plumage. If you think you are being followed home from this movie, keep telling yourself it's all in your mind. From UMC. Dario Argento had been a screenwriter for several years before he made his directorial debut with The Bird with the Crystal Plumage. Like Mario Bava, he came from an Italian filmmaking family and had already worked with filmmakers such as Sergio Leone and Bernardo Bertolucci. While Argento is the only credited writer, the film was loosely inspired by a 1949 American novel called Screaming Mimi by Frederick Brown. And in addition, Argento worked closely on the script with his assistant, Aldo Lado, whose work as a director we will talk about later in this series. Argento originally pursued directors such as Duccio Tassari and Terence Young, the director of Dr. No from Russia with Love and Thunderball, before he ended up directing the film himself. There's there's a strong influence of Blood and Black Lace on The Bird with the Crystal Plumage, although there's some distinct differences that we'll talk about. Uh, The film stars American actor Tony Musante as Sam Dalmas, an American writer who's been living in Rome for some time and is getting ready to return to the U.S. with his British model girlfriend. Uh, Tony Musante, a few years later, I, I have to add, would star in a TV series created by Stephen J. Canal based on the real life exploits of a Newark, New Jersey undercover cop called Toma. And Musante left the series after one season. And rather than recast, Canal created another, more fictionalized version of the same concept, this time titled Beretta, starring Robert Blake. Wow. You want to talk about your sliding doors of cinema right there. (laughs) The film also co-stars Susie Kendall, Enrico Salerno, Eva Renzi, Umberto Rayo, and Reggie Nalder. And there's just an incredible array of talent behind the camera as well, with Cinematography by three-time Oscar winner Vittorio Storaro, who also did Ishtar. Yay! And a score by Ennio Morricone. This film is just incredible. I I love Blood Blood and Black Lace, but The Bird with the Crystal Plumage is just one of my favorites. Absolutely one of my favorites. Time for a proclamation. Grand proclamation alert. Oh, oh, I'm very excited. This is another perfect film. Yeah, there is you can whatever you point out to me as a flaw, I will tell you why it is not. This movie is perfect. I would not change one frame of it. And frankly, in when you were talking about all of the very accomplished, very skilled directors who he tried to get to do this first, I think this just showcases Dario Argento, unsurprisingly, is such a unique and twisted filmmaker. Yeah. What he brings to this is incalculable. The tone, while you can say Blood and Black Lace was nasty, and this is nastier just because it's like 1970. Yeah, yeah. And that part, partly is true. But that's like saying that, you know, Blue Velvet is a little nastier because it's not, you know, 1976. I, I don't right, know. Right. It's no, like, I think you're right. There is something so singular about him as a person. 
and his his combining the beauty and the and the terror yeah is so off-putting but even more draws you in i it's i just don't even know what else to say chris yeah no it's it's amazing i i I gotta say i watched uh i had seen this i've seen this movie before this is not my first time but it was my wife's first time seeing oh what did she think she loved it yeah she loved it she really really did she was she was a little i think apprehensive at first because she didn't know anything about she had heard me talk about giallo hadn't really seen any any examples of it but it was she she thought it was terrific she i could tell she was genuinely on the edge of her seat throughout uh, throughout the film. So we open in this dark room with a black gloved figure. It's always the black gloves hitting the keys on a typewriter. And we cut to this young woman being followed and photographed in the streets of Rome. And right off the bat, that theme of voyeurism is present. The audience is looking through the lens of the camera with the killer or the presumed killer. And, and you know, we see the knife selection. Yeah. Uh, like the, this 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 group of knives on red, red velvet. velvet. And oh, yeah. Red velvet. Oh, my God. And I, I want to mention that the victim, who we'll soon learn is the third young woman who's killed recently in Rome, is wearing a bright red coat, just like Isabella in the opening scene of Blood and Black Lice. Except here, it's in the daytime rather than the night. There's, there's very little daytime in Blood and Black Lice. It's almost entirely at night. This film has quite a lot in the day. Yeah, and it's urban. Which yes. is a huge difference because yes. in Blood and Black Lace, you get the classic, you are separated from society, so you're alone and thus in danger. Yes. This movie, unsurprisingly, uh, in cinema all over, I guess you would say, the Western world, uh, as you're transitioning into the 70s, being away from other people isn't what is scary. It's being around other people that is scary. Absolutely. and. And most of these giallos do take place in urban settings of one or another. There, there are a couple of key exceptions uh, where you have a more rural setting, but most of them have – they are set in modern, very modern cities. And then we're introduced to Sam and his friend Carlo, who's a professor, for whom Sam has just completed writing a book on the preservation of rare birds. And, and it's interesting. Sam is this likable yet distant guy. Like there's something about his demeanor when he's asked if he wants a copy of the book and he just holds up the paycheck and says, who needs it? I have this. And it, it just – there's something about him that feels a little removed, but it, but not unlikable, not in a, in, a, in a way that I'm like, oh, I don't, I don't like him. I, he, he's clearly a good person. Yeah, this is a very certain kind of 70s heroic antihero. So not yes. like a full-on Bonnie and Clyde antihero. This is more like – Elliot Gould is the star of your movie yes. or, you know, Alan Alda or something. So this is a guy who is a good guy, but they are, you know, really, and this whole, this whole movie has a lot of gallows humor, which I had for. Oh yeah. Right. Um, but you know, they really are poking fun at these, the old movie tropes of who is supposed to be the dashing lead and who is right. supposed to be doing this. And in part, it's also because this is a character you know, at moments who's going to have um, some vulnerability and some unsureness to yeah. what is going on with himself and and the case, so to speak. Yeah, and there's this whole issue, you know, there, there's a whole thing when this movie playing with issues of masculinity and what men yeah. are supposed to do. And and it's, it's the, I will say, I got to say, before we go on, that Tony Musante has a fantastic head of hair. Yes. My goodness. Like it's, 
Just great. And, like, and one of the, look, I'm going to be even more reductive. And one of the best beauty marks you have ever seen on a male actor. <laughs> it's it's true, like, it's true. He, he, it, 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 you just look at this guy and it's ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> I love that when, when he goes to pick up the check, you know, there's this, he's, he goes in with his, like his college professor friend and it's this room in the college's display room with like hundreds and hundreds of stuffed birds. And all I can think of is sort of this visual connection to Norman Bates and his taxidermy in Psycho, except on, on a grand, grand scale, like a, a, you know, and I'm like, well, there's, there's the movie right there. And, you know, it's like, it, it's, it, there are some distinct parallels to Psycho, which we'll get in as we go. I love how quickly this movie gets to it. Like it doesn't waste time. It is less than five minutes before Sam is walking home in, an, in the evening, distracted by a well-lit window inside an art gallery. And inside, he sees two figures struggling on a balcony. As he gets closer, he sees a a, a woman with a blood dripping from a wound and a figure in a dark raincoat and hat begin to make an escape. And Sam finds himself, oh, this is the most fascinating setup for, I mean, it's so great. He finds himself trapped between two glass doors of the gallery. So like there's the inner door. He can't actually move into the gallery, but then the glass door to the street is closed behind him. So he can't leave and get help. He's just stuck there. And all he can do is watch what, you know, you know, the, as the, as the, as the killer escapes and the woman crawl, you know, crawls across the floor, she's got blood on her hand and, you know, she's reaching out to him and, and like the audience, like Sam, like us can only observe what's happening. He can't intercede. Uh, and it's no coincidence. I'll, I'll say that the, the, the window of this store is this rectangular window that is the same general size and shape as a movie screen. You know, this is, he becomes a, a, a viewer just like us. Yeah, absolutely. It's an amazing sequence. Amazing sequence. Yeah. And, and also you want to bring in the, the masculinity part. He opens this movie by in the most critical moment, probably of his entire life, right? Even though it's not his life that's at stake. This is the most important thing that he, the biggest thing that's probably ever happened to him life or death angle. Yeah. And he is literally impotent and yeah. can do nothing. Yeah. Impotent, not in a sexual way, but just in terms of being unable to act, but unable to do anything. He calls to somebody outside, but maybe they understood him. Maybe they didn't. Uh, and all he can do is watch as this woman covered in blood collapses on the floor. And he eventually, uh, he eventually just, once the scene is he kind sits of down. gone, he just sits down against the wall and waits for the cops to come. Because what can he do? He can't do anything. It's not like, oh, yeah, there's not, it's not like, oh, there's a thing in there he could use to smash the glass. That wasn't an option. He's just stuck. And, yeah. and uh, this whole so scene, because it's at the art gallery, right, where you get like some very amazing pieces. So it, yeah. it's, it's like in some ways, and, and the walls are all white. It's almost like he's trapped in between the glass panes having to watch uh, like a clockwork orange when they bust into the house and murder the woman or, you know, and then also um, on top of it, you've got the artwork in here, all of the artwork throughout. Oh, it's so unsettling. I I swear to God. And I don't know. And of course, as you know, I'm lazy, so I didn't look up, but. (laughs) Clive Barker has to love this movie because there's no question. All of that artwork, there's no question. I was, just, I was like, oh, I mean, it's not, it's not exactly what he does, but I'm like, oh, this just, it's so unsettling. It is like, you know, Clive Barker or, or you could, I guess, say the, 
the uh, stop motion uh, Jan Zwankmeyer pieces too, perhaps. But anyway. The cops do eventually arrive, led by Inspector Morosini. And naturally, they have questions for Sam. Questions that he doesn't really have the answer to. He tells them what he saw, and that's that. Except there's one thing. One thing nagging. There was something wrong with that scene. Something odd. I can't pin it down, but I have a definite feeling that something didn't fit. But I have a definite feeling that something didn't fit. And this thing that didn't fit will become a point of obsession for Sam. And that's, I mean, it's its the key to it. I mean, the, the police confiscate his passport, which forces him to change his travel plans for the time being. But Sam knows that there's something that he saw that he's not understanding. And it's the search for that that drives this movie. Yeah. And normally I'm very tough on writers as protagonists in movies because I, <laughs> as they say, see the fingerprints on it. Um, right. But in this one, they really don't play it. You know, they don't overplay it. But the idea, because this is a movie that's already in the framing of the first murder, has not exactly broken the fourth wall, but it's certainly, you know, at least revealing it a little. Yeah. I would say that, you know, you then wind up with a writer who's obsessed with trying to figure people out and figuring out what actually happened. Absolutely. And that is not... That is that is fairly believable to a point, um, and he does become quite a bit obsessed with it. And it's funny because as he's going through on this on his you know investigation journey, uh, at first kind of being strung strong armed by the Italian police, the inspector, and then becoming a, a willing participant. Yeah, he is very much uh, you could say uh, a man of action, if not necessarily macho. It's it's almost like he's got to make up for that that point in time when he could do nothing. Yeah, uh, it's. I want to make you you point out something. This is really interesting. His relationship with Inspector Morosini as the film goes on, like it, it starts out adversarial at the beginning, and then over the course, you, you, they're almost friends. Like, and and Inspector Morosini is encouraging him to do his own investigation because, well, I guess you know he he's looking for anything that you know. It's it's really interesting, and they they connect. The police believe that the attack may be connected to the three other murders that have happened in the city recently, the the third of which was the victim we saw at the very beginning. It's just amazing how much of a change there was in filmmaking between 1964 and 70. Like, while Blood and Black Lace is largely stage-bound, even some of the outdoor shots, I think, were probably shot on sound stages. Here, it, it just... It feels like it is all in practical locations around Rome and not the touristy part of Rome. We never get shots of the Colosseum or the Spanish Steps or anything like that. This is like the Rome where people live. Yeah. And, you know, as part of all of that, this is it's funny. Blood and Black Lace is high end, high end. Yeah. Everything is beautiful and clean. Yeah. In Bird with the Crystal Plumage, and I think this is in part the era, but this is in part Argento, you do get a lot of beauty in this movie, but it is encased in a world of shit. <laughs> yeah. I think that that is like one of the biggest changes because blood and black lace might be scandalous. This movie is um, perverted. Yeah. It can be disgusting, right? Yeah. This is a dirty, dirty movie in that sense. And I don't yeah. mean pornographic or anything. No, no, no. Um, but just, when you compare the eras, and I know that in Italy around this time, there was a lot of 
economic stratification. I think there was a lot of worker strikes going on. I think yeah, in, in Europe in general, yeah. Yeah, the communists were in play in the government. And so I think the idea of portraying kind of a, a corrupt, dirty world where something is amiss with the upper echelon of society, in this case, exemplified by the very you know, rich world of the art gallery and everyone in that orbit who we will wind up meeting. I, I don't know that all that is always intentional, but it certainly, in hindsight, seems very zeitgeisty. Yeah. And certainly the direction in which the entire 70s would go in a lot of world cinema. Yeah, no, no, I agree. And, and it's interesting because I think that the 70s, in a sense, the 70s are a period where cities, world cities, were at their most like literally dirty. Like if you look at a, a like London in the 70s, like the buildings are literally filthy because no one's power washed those things through the entire 20th century. And it's just like they've reached that point where it's like and, and again, I think maybe maybe the power washer hadn't been invented yet. But like that's like they literally start cleaning stuff in the 80s and 90s. There's a there's corruption of a different sort. But like literally the city is dirty. And, and that, you know, again, as you say, you have beauty wrapped within them. Sam's girlfriend returns and, and try as he might, he can't shake the images from that night. He's feeling that he's missing something. So he begins to look into the three killings as a kind of amateur detective and with the full support of Morosini. Like he's brought into a lineup of suspects, which opens with the classic line, right, bring, bring in, in the perverts. perverts. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Uh, my favorite line in this whole movie. Oh, and, and he's present when the police are trying to use computers to narrow the suspect pool. This computer is this giant machine with punch cards that's fed all the relevant data and comes back with something like 150,000 suspects. And it's like, well, that's useless. Yeah. Uh, it's less than useless. And I, I want to point out a couple things because, you know, lest we go too far from the Giallo uh, formula. Sure. His girlfriend, Sam's girlfriend, is of course a model. a model that is her profession although we yeah. don't see it so they're like you know playing it a little close to the vest there but i also want to, the memory flashes that he has of the yeah. night of the murder are fantastic they are they're very evocative you know they're often followed uh, or accompanied by uh neo's score which at those points you know, there, there, there are parts of the score that can be very musical and almost Life of the City-esque. It's La Dolce Vita with a body count. But in that moment, <laughs> it is, you know, not strictly atonal in the modern horror movie sense. But it's really not far off where you'll get like right. maybe like a Hans Zimmer drone and like some plucking strings, right? But nothing right. that you would associate like that piece of music could have never appeared in any Hitchcock movie. Right. And this, you're starting to see some of these stylistic changes where it's getting a little raw, uh, including with the, the, you know, even looking at the use of the killer POV with the camera and like the use of freeze frame in this movie, very, very different from Rear Window, for instance, right? Absolutely. Those 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 memory flashbacks, and and my wife pointed this out. They're unreliable. Oh yeah, because he he, he they're, they're, like little details change the further he gets from that initial incident, which is much like how real memory functions actually. Yes, and as you said, that theme of what's really going on. Can I even trust what I'm? What I think I've saw? What I think I heard? Right. So with Morosini's permission, Sam goes to see Monica Ranieri, the woman who was attacked, but her husband won't allow Sam to see her. 
you know, that, that immediately makes Sam suspicious. He then starts to look into the other three murders. The first was a young girl who worked at a store, which Sam goes to visit. And this is where he has the encounter with the very stereotypically gay shop owner, which is a curious it's a curious thing because it feels that's what a, aspect of the film that feels dated is this curious scene because on the surface you have a, a very obvious and not very flattering gay stereotype at work of this the shop owner who is a very aggressive as an attraction to Sam. But the whole thing, I think, is more tied in to this subversion of masculinity that's happening. From the beginning, Sam is a character, as you say, defined by impotence, is unable to act. Here... We get that right from the beginning when he's talking about his writing and, and how he came to Rome for inspiration and didn't find any. The only thing he made money on was a book about birds. But here, it, it's how it's not about the, the, the gay shopkeeper. It's how uncomfortable Sam is in the company of this gay man. And it speaks to his own insecurity. Yeah. And I, at least for me, I have a uh, perhaps a dumber view of it, <laughs> which is. That they made the shopkeeper, or at least the guy who's working there at the time, um, you know, they made him gay so that Sam could ask questions and this guy would be motivated to just answer and give well, him- that and makes like, sense too, yeah. Because he goes above and beyond. Yes, he does. Because he even gets out, he he gets the- um, The photo. The, the, the photo. Conveniently so had. you can have one of my, just like a fantastic match cut. Oh, yeah. what a great match cut that is. Oh, yeah. So the girl who was murdered- immediately before being murdered had sold a painting and the shopkeeper has a photo of that painting which he allows sam to keep and the painting depicts this horrific attack by a man wielding a knife on a young woman in otherwise pastoral landscape it's described as naive but macabre and i'm like that's sam that's sam right there and and sam's able to take the photo home he puts it up on the wall which uh, I think and kind of his girlfriend doesn't seem to be too thrilled about she doesn't seem to be too thrilled about all of this. Uh, I mean, she goes along with it, but she's not too thrilled. But she does also call it out several times. The do you think this is smart? You're putting yourself <laughs> in danger. And maybe me. Um, I, you also do get the the great running. You great, get a great runner. It's not a ton, but like two or three points where. And look, maybe this plays in with some of this stuff yeah. where she clearly wants to have sex with Sam because they haven't seen each other in a while. Yes. And he is so obsessed with this case that he doesn't. He is yes. not showing her the physical affection that she is wanting because they've been apart. But he is now too far gone down this other road. Sam, just, uh, you know, g- give give your model girlfriend some time. That's all. I'm, it's just my advice to you, Sam. Did you learn nothing from <laughs> Massimo Moracci? <laughs> Sometimes it's okay to just be with your beautiful life partner and enjoy things. Exactly. In the meantime, the killer attacks another young woman. This sequence, oh my God, is one of the most harrowing as a figure in a black trench coat with black gloves. Almost the same exact, uh, you know, uh, uh, costume that that the killer blood and black waist wears enters the apartment of a young woman. And this whole sequence feels like the evolution of the opening scene of Blood and Black Lace. But instead of the young woman being attacked outside, the killer waits until she's in the supposed safety of her home. And again, you mix the sexuality and the violence because the victim in that she is absolutely beautiful. There's a, her body is barely covered by her nightgown or nighty, uh, which, which I might add, why not? She's gone home and going to bed. She's, you know, but the killer comes into the room and, 
has this long knife that cuts open the nighty. And and while we don't see the actual attack, it is very strongly implied that the killer stabbed her between her legs. Yeah, and yeah. it is a tense long moment. And I want to oh. say that it is in this scene. Um, I, I'm not always so specific, but I believe in this scene with the score here. Because I did wear, uh, watch this wearing headphones. And I think this is one of the points, and you do get at other points, where Ennio has these just below the mix, like almost like sub vocalizations of nonsense that are so unsettling. Interesting. Where it almost sounds like the chatter in a deranged mind, uh, or at least a an expression thereof, where you'll hear, you know, you hear like the the atonal stuff going and it's a little thrillery, and then just under the mix, you'll hear now i'm not doing it i can't remember exactly what oh, it was but that's, it's, it's very that made me and crazy i mean I'll, I'll just quote you know charles bronson in the movie 10 to midnight the knife has got to be his penis yeah <laughs> <laughs> sam continues his investigation the second girl who was killed was a prostitute and sam goes to see her pimp in prison who is in prison on other charges his alibi for the killing was airtight uh this guy's fascinating you know he, he's this squirrel guy that has this verbal tick where he ends practically every sentence with so long so long and 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 sam throughout the movie like he's just collecting this odd group of characters who help him on his quest i mean in one way or another not even some of them not that much but like it's just you know here again i think it's subverting the masculinity expecting the pimp to be this this big masculine guy and he's this squirrely broken dude yeah and the pimp character and frankly sam's relationship with the inspector these are all areas where you can get a little tension relief you get a little you know um if not full-on comic relief per se you at least get some levity okay yeah. where it's like some quirks and things. All of this is interesting because you can kind of look back into some of the classic Hollywood stuff, even like as far as Bogart, where you're getting like snappy stuff yeah. back and forth in life or death situations where, you know, in real life, maybe sometimes people do this, maybe it would be inappropriate, you know, but they're doing it because of the, the medium of the movies. And you're seeing this kind of like now being uh, ingested and, and, a new version coming out with the Italian Giallo films and man, Oh man, if you don't watch this movie and see like the second half of seventies, American films leading into the eighties yep, with like these, these relationships between regular people and the cops, um, the, the, the quirky character who you go to see, who will give you a clue. I'm like, this is, this is like every CBS procedural. Absolutely. All you do is go to, Oh, or law and order, I guess before, um, where it's just like, oh, you're going to go, you're going to go track down some info at this one place. And so you're going to go there. Shoe leather. You're going to do the shoe leather. And so we just have to have a weird character and that'll yeah. make it interesting. I guess yes. Columbo did, did that a lot as well. Columbo. Yeah, absolutely. Kojak. It was all, yeah. that's a whole, that's a whole Kojak episode. But the original Perry Mason did not do it. So you can see, you can see the line where it doesn't happen. And then it does starting into the seventies where you get the switch. Absolutely. Uh, I want to mention inspector Morsini receives a taunting phone call from the killer. Sam later receives another phone call warning him to stop his investigation. That's going to be important. I wish we had a Honeywell computer to analyze those calls for us, Chris. (laughs) One with punch cards. 
One with punch cards that's the size of a city block, yeah. As Sam and his girlfriend, Julia, are attacked on the street by someone driving a car, the driver actually hits the detective who's kind of shadowing them and guarding them. And the chase ensues. And and you have this great chase through the city of of Rome where the gunman gets out of the car and he pursues Sam and Julia on foot. Uh, Sam's able to lead the gunman away from Julia. And there's this game of cat and mouse between him and the gunman. And unlike the black glove killer, the gunman's face is seen very clearly. And he's played by prolific character actor Reggie Nalder, whose credits include the original Star Trek, Hitchcock's The Man Who Knew Too Much, The Manchurian Candidate, and he played vampire Kurt Barlow in the 1979 adaptation of Salem's Lot. And he's just got a really distinctive face. And you probably already know he's not the actual killer because we didn't do our spoiler alert before right. we talked No, this about guy it. is clear from the jump he's yeah. not the actual no. killer. And, and and Sam is able to turn the tables on him a little bit uh, and, and starts following the gunman. And Sam, again, this is what you're talking about, where he's pushing himself in terms of what he's comfortable with because – he wants to make up for what happened and his inability to act. So he follows them into a hotel. Now, the gunman, I should add, is wearing this bright yellow distinctive jacket. Like, it's this bright yellow jacket. And I'm just like, you know, when I go out to assassinate people, I don't wear bright colors. I- I'm just saying. Hypothetically, if I were to go out and as a professional assassin, I would wear dark colors, but that's just me. But he goes, Sam's following the bright yellow jacket, and he follows them in a hotel to find an entire room full of men with bright yellow jackets. It's like a meeting of a former boxers association where they're like discussing pension issues. It's very, very good. It's 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 just a great sequence. Yeah, and this is where I think you get Argento comes through in this relatively minor turn in the investigation, right? Yeah. In an American version of this movie, uh, whether or not you wanted to do it, I'm sure the studio execs would force you to, you would be interviewing boxers trying to describe the guy in the jacket to see if he was part, anyone in the boxing community know him because he had the boxing jacket. Right. In this movie, they don't do that boring ass shit. <laughs> no, no. It's just kind of assumed he did this knowing he was going to use it as cover to get away. Yeah. And then you're off to the next actually interesting thing. Yes. Which the 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 next actually interesting thing is the killer murders another victim. This one, you know, you talk about Argento showing through. Yeah. That, that apartment building where the young woman is ascending these staircases with this like distinctive triangular shape. And it's just go. I'm like, it is. It is a pure Argento shot where you're looking up these this set of staircases, and all I can think of is the distinctive architecture from Argento's later film Suspiria. I mean, it's it's this is Suspiria 1.0, just in the in the construction of this. Oh, for sure. And you know, Argento is just his frames are just as composed as Bava's, and at times they can be just as classically framed. Yes, but the difference is that. Argento will frequently, including in in the sequence you're just talking about here, he will frequently use beautifully composed frames, but taken from odd angles or editing that, like leaving out bits in the editing. And he's doing it to kind of disorient you quite a bit, as opposed to orienting you, which Bava is pretty much always doing. And it's just fascinating to see similar traits, you know, directorially and, and high level craftsmanship, but being used to 
in the same genre, but to radically different ends. Absolutely. The computer that you mentioned, the Honeywell computer, that comes back that that the two phone calls came from different voices. They analyzed them and they are not the same voice. And at the same time, Sam's friend, the bird professor, recognizes this strange sound on the tape but he can't place it. Like Sam and the image of the memory, he can't, there's a detail he can't place of what is that sound? <laughs> and at this point, you know, like Morissini returns Sam's passport, you know, and, and it's like, you you should go. You know, you, we don't want to put you in danger. You should With leave. With your model girlfriend. You know, Sam, what the hell, man? He's done enough. He, you've, you've done, done enough. so much. Also, you know, let's just to get into this. You're tainting the actual investigation. I can't imagine the Italian <laughs> law is going to accept any evidence from this crazy American author of bird books. Yes. So really, yes. you're doing more harm than good. But okay, that's it. I've, I've yeah. said my piece. Yeah. So well, but but they're getting ready to go, and much to like to the point where where he's looking at the clock. He's like. I could interview the artist who painted the picture that was sold at the gallery where the first woman was killed. And he's like, I, he lives out in the country. I think I can make it there and back before we have to leave for a flight. And I'm like, Sam, just let it go. But no, he goes and visits the artist. Uh, and, you know, and, and it has this trip into the country, literally and figuratively a trip because the artist lives by himself in this house, surrounded by cats. He sealed off all the doors. There's only way up is climbing through a ladder into the window. And, and the artist tells Sam that the painting is a depiction of something that happened about a decade earlier. What was your inspiration for that painting? You want to eat? Uh, yeah. That was a real story, a long time ago. F, fine. How long? Oh, 10 years, more or less. A maniac got hold of a girl I knew. Tried to cut her up. Just stopped him in time. Put him in an asylum for life. Ah. To buy a painting or not. This is key information, although Sam and the audience don't understand why. Uh, and again, we have this recurring theme of Sam is unable to interpret the importance of what he has seen or learned. Here, he's distracted by the revelation that the artist eats the cats. And then Sam unknowingly ate some cat, and he just gets the heck out of there without buying a painting. It's a, it's a, it's again, as you're talking about, it's this trippy scene with this odd character along the way. Here we get some really interesting information that's key to it, but we don't understand why. Yeah, I mean, in this artist, it's like if you locked Coffin Joe up in an <laughs> attic and made him paint, you would get oh. this guy. Yeah. 
but it, 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 this is, you know, it is a scene that exists really to give one very specific piece of the puzzle. Yes. Even though Sam doesn't make the connection right here. And it, as a matter of fact, if you're making the connection, you're probably thinking, has this killer been around a lot longer than we thought is, is what right. the implication is. But why in the country come and now he's in the city? Like what, what you have no clue what's going on there, but you could have done this so much more efficiently if you really just wanted to get in and out. Theoretically. Yes. But it's, it's so great. It's, it is great. And it really is because the, the tone and the mood. And also by taking longer, we are starting to feel how long he's been gone and yes. whether or not that's going to be a good thing. Yeah. Uh, not, I don't even need to spoiler alert. It is not a good While thing. While Sam is off on his kittylicious sojourn in the countryside, Julia finds herself the next target of the killer. And in another masterfully constructed suspense sequence, prefiguring Stanley Kubrick's The Shining a decade later, she barricades herself in the apartment while the killer is just like punching through the door with like a sharp implement. And it's... I mean, it's, we, we all, she passes out. It's only afterwards that we learn Sam arrived in time, but the killer managed to escape. And it's, it is an incredible suspense sequence. All of these suspense sequences are so, they're so good. And in case you were wondering, in Argento's first movie, did we get a close-up of an eyeball? You're goddamn right we did. And it was here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, he did not waste time getting to eyeballs, people. No. This is a genre of eyes. This this is a genre of eyes, my friend. And- uh, their friend Carlo, the professor, returns. He's figured out the clicking noise on the tape is the call of a rare bird native to Siberia, often referred to as the bird with the crystal plumage due to its translucent feathers. There's only one in Italy at the zoo. Now, we are going to be crossing the spoiler line into the, the final revelation of the killer. Uh, if you have never seen the bird with the clim- the crystal plumage, I implore you, skip ahead to the end. Uh, you know, this movie's a, at the moment, it's available on Amazon Prime. It's available on Tubi. It is readily available. Go bathe yourself in perfection. Just stop it, listening. It's so good. It's so good. So, all right, here we go. The area of the zoo where the bird is kept is right below the window of the apartment of Monica Ranieri and her husband, Alberto, the owner of the gallery where the initial attack happened. Sam, Julia, and Carlo race up to the apartment to find Monica struggling with their husband. And the fight ensues, and Alberto plummets out the window to his death. And on the ground, he makes a dying declaration, taking responsibility for the murders. They achieve that fall effect, by the way, by tying a rope to a camera and dropping it down from like six stories. A camera was destroyed, but they got the shot. That's well worth it. The police arrive and take charge of the scene. Sam realizes Julia is missing. And he wanders through the streets of Rome. Like it's it, it's it takes a while. Like the sun goes down, and he's asking people if they've seen a girl in a gray raincoat. And eventually, he finds himself in this darkened building where Carlo is sitting in a chair, waiting with a knife in his hand. And for a moment, it seems like Carlo may be the culprit. But then Sam realizes he's been stabbed in the back and is dead. And I should point out that Sam completely misses the fact that Julia is bound and gagged on the floor nearby. Again, he looks, but he does not see. And finally, the murder is revealed to be Monica Ranieri. 
she steps out of the shadows. She tosses back her long red hair and laughs insanely. And it's only then that Sam realizes what he actually saw that night in the art gallery. (laughs) It was you. That's where I went wrong. You had a knife in your hand. You were trying to kill your husband. Not the other way around. That's what I knew I'd seen. That's what I knew I'd seen! It was Monica who was the attacker, not the one being attacked. And she was holding the knife and attempting to kill her husband. It is all of this sequence is perfectly played. Beautiful. And her performance at this point is oh. fantastic. I mean, throughout, uh, it, it's fantastic. And really all of the acting. I mean, this is yes. this reveal scene versus the reveal scene in Blood and Black Lace. If you, it, if you wanted to watch three minutes of each film and in a nutshell – see what six years did yes and a change in a change in style and a change in tones like blood and black lace the the acting is fantastic but it is kind of that classical you know kind of movie acting yeah this is post method acting yeah this is post so it is just really affecting and fantastic and um frightening yeah and eva renzi who who hasn't had a whole lot to do in this movie aside from be the victim in the opening sequence and and that's you know there's not much like there's another scene where we meet her and just it's kind of but here oh my god i mean she is amazing and deranged and terrifying she is absolutely terrifying Sam chases her and, 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 and into the dark until the lights snap on and they realize and Sam realizes he's back in the art gallery uh, where she knocks over this massive jagged edge statue onto Sam and the laughing and the taunting. And it's only at the last second that the police arrive to save him and capture Monica and reveal that Julia was able to escape and call the police. Sam, for all his investigation, didn't even realize he was back in the art gallery. Yeah. But just... Oh, it's it's incredible. For Chekhov's creepy art wall with spikes, because we did see this yeah. being installed earlier, and it looked <laughs> yes, really, yes, it looked really terrible then, too. And, you know, to get into what you were talking about, you know, a guy who, you know, was impotent in the beginning, you know, could not do anything, and in that moment of male impotence, could not see past the gender roles. Right. And could not see that the woman was the aggressor in this case. Right. And, and maybe even because of his impotence in the moment, really could not, like, did not want to see it. He could not handle yeah. the fact that he could do nothing and had been put in that place, not by a killer dude, but by a killer, a killer lady. lady. Yeah. 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 It's, it is, it's amazing. It's, it's, it's perfectly realized. The performance is everything. In the end, we get this the final scene is this spin on the last scene of psycho where the psychiatrist yeah. explains the motive, except here it's in the context of a television interview. And it's revealed that Monica was the victim of the attack 10 years earlier that inspired the painting. And upon seeing that painting, it triggered something inside her, but rather than identifying with the victim, she took on the persona of the attacker. And her husband, who loved her, was trying to stop her killing and at the same time protect her from being identified and captured, even to his dying breath. And she only got reactivated when she wandered into that art gallery and saw the painting. 
So presumably she was not killing for a decade. She was she presumably was not. It triggered something. Yeah. And and again, you have that that gender role swap that is also, you know, uh, in Psycho in a different context. It's interesting that both of the films today feature couples working in collaboration, although for very different reasons and in very different contexts. In Blood and Black Lace, the crimes appear to be acts of passion or madness, but they have a core motivation that's purely practical. Here, the murders are truly the result of a deranged killer, one who seems to actually derive pleasure from creating terror. It's it's a film about memory. It's a film about interpretation. And to quote Dario Argento, I always thought that memory was deceptive. It can make you remember the wrong facts because memory is filtered by our culture, by the things we read, the experiences we have. And and Rob, I got to say, it's, it, I watched this movie earlier this week. It wasn't the first time I saw it, but in the days since, I can't stop thinking about it and trying to find new aspects. I can't help thinking that maybe I'm missing something about this extraordinary film that I don't, I don't want to leave undiscussed. And I'm like, I'm turning into Sam. I'm trying to figure out what am I missing? Because it's so, it is a movie of such richness and depth. It is a film about art and the effect that art has. Uh, and and that Monica's triggered by a painting is so fascinating and the movie begins and ends in an art gallery. It's we're all observers, but like Sam, we don't always know what it is we're looking at. Yeah, and and the the fact that the movie pretty much opens and ends in the same spot in that art gallery. Yeah, the first time where you can do nothing because you don't know what's going on, and at the end you can do nothing, even though he going on. Yeah, yeah, and and he has to be saved. So it's funny his entire journey is one of frustration. Really, you get. You know, Julia and, and Ma- Massimo Ex Machina, really. Um, and it's, <laughs> you know, and, and the other thing, though, for me is that I, I touched on it earlier, but for such a sleazy movie, and I say that with great affection. Anyone who knows me absolutely. knows that I say that with great affection. I mean, absolutely. For such a sleazy movie to be this, be- I like, honestly, I'm not sure for my money that there is a more beautiful horror movie that yeah. I can think of. And I yeah. and I know that I, I know all of the ones that are probably on your list uh, that you're yelling at me through the speaker <laughs> right now about. And I, I wouldn't argue that those are beautiful too, right? Even going all the way back to something like, you know, James Wales Frankenstein, Browning's Dracula, sure. and beyond, right? The uh, the German expressionist films of Cabinet of Dr. Yeah. Caligari, uh, you know, absolutely. And I know someone's going to trout out Rosemary's Baby, and I'm going to just shuttle that off to the side because... I will get I will get yelled at if I start talking about Rosemary's Baby, uh, and not because of the strike, but because I am the only horror fan on earth who hates that movie. Uh, it's so fascinating. Know, that 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 is another series which we'll talk about. That yeah, that's but, another one down the line. But this movie's so beautiful, Chris. It is so. Beautiful. It is. It absolutely is. And 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 it's it's again it it crystallizes the giallo form in such a way that it, it, it we get this whole wave of giallo films in in the coming years. Like if you were in Italy in the early seventies, it must have been one of these things in the theaters every week. And we'll talk about a lot of them. I mean, some of them made to the U.S., some of them didn't. What's so interesting about giallo is it's this nexus point in cinema where you're drawing from all these different influences, the Krimi, the the film noir, Hitchcock, and it puts them all together and it puts them in something distinct and a unique package 
But then that package goes out and has influences a whole range of suspense and crime and horror filmmakers. And it's, it's an extraordinary inflection point in cinema. And it's all within a few years. I mean, they could still make Giallos. They make Giallos into the 80s. They still technically can make them today. But that period in the early 70s in Italy, I mean, all of which kind of gets the boom from the success of Bird with the Crystal Plumage. Sure. And you could talk about the, the, the most interesting thing to me about all of this is, uh, you know, there have obviously Italian cinema has been influential throughout the history of cinema. Absolutely. And there are periods, uh, some that we've covered, where Italian cinema would often hop on trends and try and hitch a ride on American films. What is so unique about this is how Italian it is. Yes. This is not, I mean, you can feel the, just like anything, you can feel the influences and in art all over the place, but this is not hopping on a trend. This is homegrown in Italy. Yeah. And it is, I think, that unique characteristic of that time and place that is one of the big attractions because it is, um, you know, uh, you just feel the, the great history and beauty and the, the revulsion of the modern era on top of it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think that closes us for today. I mean, I got to tell you, I am very excited for this and the films that we have coming up, uh, you know, Blood and Black Lace and The Bird with the Crystal Plumage are just the tip of the Italian psychologically themed iceberg that we have ahead of us in the weeks to come. Uh, and I should mention, I want to I want to say we will be organizing this series a little differently. Many of the episodes that we'll do, although not all, will focus on the films of a particular filmmaker. And that includes next week when we'll discuss two films by one of the most prolific Giallo directors, Sergio Martino. And we're very excited to have joining us for that discussion, someone who I know is a genuine Giallo enthusiast, Jeff Garlock of the Canon Canon. So join us next week with Jeff when we'll be talking about the strange vice of Mrs. Ward and the case of the scorpion's tail. And thank you so much for listening. We are your hosts, Chris Iannacone and Rob Lamorges. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider subscribing and following us on Twitter and Instagram and threads at Get Me Another Pod. If you like the show, please tell your friends about it. Tell your enemies about it. Tell that black glove stranger about it before she, he or she has a chance to do you in. And join us next time as we continue to explore what happens when studios say... Get me another. Right, bring in the perverts. <laughs>